Hello everyone, it's time for another episode of The Casual Martial Artist with Al and Marcus. So, this episode is actually going to drop very close to April Fool's Day. So, I figured, what better time to talk about urban legends? Because, I don't know about you, but I love urban legends. I just think they're very fascinating, and in a way, they're they're as much a cultural thing as anything else. I don't know if uh, that makes sense or not. Yeah, totally. Also reminds me of the myth and mystery course that you and I both took once. Yeah, uh, which one of them, um, I know he, because the, the class he was talking about, um, there was a professor at UW Oshkosh in the Religious Studies Department, Dr. Wendell Charles Bean. And I know I've talked to him, uh, I've talked about him on geekery in general, sometimes when I've talked about my religious studies program, he was a very influential professor on me, so I you know, mentioned my experiences with him, but yeah, Myth and Mystery, that was one of those classes where it had like a, I think it had sometimes like a two-year waiting period because people were so interested in getting into it. Yeah, I didn't until my second to last semester, and I was already, had probably seven upper-level classes already under my belt, so it took me a while to get in. Yeah, that one I took as an interim class because uh, the way Oshkosh worked is after the normal semester, you had the option to take a three-week interim class. So you basically went to the class for six hours a day, and uh, it, it was basically cramming 14 weeks into three weeks. So spending three weeks, solid weeks with Dr. Bean, that was awesome. So, <laughs> But in basic... Um, an urban legend is usually described as a story that gets passed around. Uh, back in the day, they usually passed via word of mouth, but eventually with the invention of, you know, well, not the invention, but when internet became more common and when people started using more emails, you know, you started using email on a regular basis, then you started to see urban legends circulate much faster and much further and, you know, often uh, going through various changes. So now when you first started using emails, did you ever have that one friend or relative that was always forwarding garbage to you, even, you know, without checking to see if it was true? I had about two or three and usually they were a bit older than I was, so they couldn't, they didn't have the, um, they didn't have the critical thinking, I guess, at the agency to to discern whether or not it was true or not or to question it. But if it's on the Internet, it has to be true, right? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, that's uh, – I know my mom, she was guilty of that. Like one of the – well, let's start by giving some urban uh, – talk a little bit about some non-martial arts urban legends before we get into the – martial art ones so for you if you were to think back what was like maybe one of the earliest urban legends that you remember hearing about in my culture there is something called the yorona it's a, a, a urban legend about a woman who she's her husband leaves her and she gets uh, becomes destitute so and she can't support her children anymore so she drowns them all and at night you can hear her like screams because she's like roaming the areas as a banshee and basically an vengeful spirit and scares people and sometimes scares them to death. That was at least the version that was told to me within my family. Okay. And yeah, a lot of times urban legends, they do revolt. They do have a fear factor to them. Mm -hmm. uh, one of my favorite ones from back when I was a kid, I grew up in the Milwaukee area, actually uh, Waukesha County. It's just outside of Milwaukee, but more people, if you tell them 
Milwaukee. They recognize Milwaukee over Waukesha. But um, anyways, one of the urban legends I remember hearing when I was a kid is that somewhere in the Milwaukee area, there was a group that put on a haunted house every, every Halloween. And supposedly, it caught, well, first, it, it cost a lot of, it was expensive to get into it. And the figure I always heard back then was 50 bucks. And again, this was in the early 90s, so just to put a timestamp on that. And then, okay, so it was really expensive to get in. It was a five-floor haunted house. But for every floor that you got past, you got a, a part of your, your, your admission fee back. Some stories they so you some stories they'll say that you only receive your admission back if you make it all the way through, uh, but again, supposedly no one ever did it because it was just that scary. And also another again, one of the things that's so fun about urban legends is how they tend to change and evolve over time. And one of the other versions I heard is that one of the reasons no one ever got to it got through the end is because the final route to the exit was like clearly dangerous you know like you'd have to you know crawl through a tunnel that was full of like barbed wire and glass shards or stuff like that where okay it's not worth you know the 50 bucks to or whatever to you know to, to go through that so they're a lot of fun and fortunately today with the internet well on the downside it does make it a lot easier to come in contact with urban legends it also makes it easier to debunk them. So sites like Snopes.com are great for that. So we're going to focus today, though, on martial arts urban legends. So this is, I don't know about you, but I think in a way it's not surprising that there are have been a lot of urban legends that have uh, sprung up about martial arts over the years. So why do you mm -hmm. think that would be? Marketing and mystique, uh, a lot was made because of Orientalism of the exoticness of martial arts. Also, they weren't something that everyone had access to, so a lot of stories could be made up, and you know there was no proving ground like we have with MMA, where you know, like you said, things can be debunked or methods can be tested. Yeah, because that's a that's a good point. Because um, they did have a. You know, for a long time, they did have this aura of mystique about them, especially when you started getting into some of the more exotic, less commonplace ones like Kung Fu, um, or I know there's a bunch about Kung Fu. And then, uh, and I think part of it, it was just because these, some of these cultures, when they came to the U.S., they were, they were sometimes closed to outsiders. Uh, like I know Eskrima went through that phase. Um, I remember when I first started studying Eskrima, my instructor had an informational packet, and they talked back then about how when Filipino workers came to the U.S. through California, they weren't always treated equally. And sometimes they were just, well, there was outright discrimination, or they were treated as second-class citizens. So um, the there were some early Eskrima instructors that did get in a little bit of trouble for uh, offering to teach their martial arts to non-Filipinos. Mm -hmm. And now again, we'll talk a little bit more about that uh, later on. But yeah, the mystique. And honestly, I think some of it is just people being stupid and trying to show how macho they are, which 
brings me to what I personally think is probably the first martial arts urban legend I've heard. And I don't know about you, but the legend that if you get a black belt in any martial art, you have to register yourself with the police as a deadly weapon. Yeah, I think the version I heard of that was your hands. Your hands were supposedly... Yeah, <laughs> your hand. Well, just your hands. Why? Why? In in uh, you know, when you get to my skill level, though, in fiery meteorite, moon dragon, wing chun, karate, jujitsuka, it's not just registering your hands. It's like you got to register your feet, your knees, your elbows, exactly. your your tongue. You know, everything is your butt. Right. Everything is a deadly weapon. <laughs> <you know? laughs> well, I don't know. After I've uh. After I've had too much cabbage, my butt does kind of become a deadly weapon, you know, with the gas. Okay, we won't go there. Right. <laughs> so, and honestly, I mean, I would say if I had to pin a starting point on this one, I think it probably started from guys getting drunk and trying to, you know, brag and prove how tough they were. It's like, oh, yeah, well, I'm such a badass that my hands are registered as deadly weapons in 72 different countries. Right. That's the way you can back out of the fight. Well, I'd fight you, but I'd get arrested. Yes, exactly. Just for looking at you. You know, and I wonder if people who claim that their hands are deadly weapons ever thought how much that would suck. Because in theory, if your hands were deadly weapons and you came up to someone and just patted them on the back to say, hi, how's it going? In theory, wouldn't that be assault with a deadly weapon? Exactly. Yeah. And, to some degree. And I don't know about you, but I've met two people in my life that did claim that their hands were registered as deadly weapons. Both of them were known for stretching the truth, and neither one of them had any martial arts training that I was aware of. Wow. Yeah. And, uh, now, when, when I was doing a little research, though, uh, actually, there is a little tiny grain of truth behind this legend, but it's nowhere near what a lot of, you know what people like to brag about. Uh, I guess in Guam, they actually do have that requirement that if you are a black belt you do have to register yourself as a deadly weapon i was also reading as one court case i think it was in minnesota um there was a you know a couple guys that got in a fight and the person one of the guys knew karate and even though he didn't start the fight i guess they assumed he was liable because they argued that since he had significant martial arts training he should have known that you know, if I do this to someone, it could break, you know, cause serious injury. Mm -hmm. But probably if we want to trace it back in World War II, uh, after the end of the war and when the U.S. was occupying Japan, uh, martial arts were banned for a little bit. And the reason was because they believed that the philosophy of some of those arts that had been revived prior to the war were very nationalistic. And would cause people to rise up in a military militaristic fashion. Um, so then after, it was like about five years or so, there was a ban. And then it, it lifted and they tried to, you know, focus on the more positive aspects of martial arts. And during this time, they did also keep some records of some of the known masters of the arts. Uh, also, I was reading that military personnel on bases were required to log their off-base activities but that was more of a way to keep track of what they were doing as opposed to, you know, rec keeping track of who was studying martial arts. Mm -hmm. So have you ever met anyone who claimed that their hands were deadly weapons? No, no I met a lot of people who claim that they could, uh, you know, that they've had like 50 fights and were never even 
had a punch landed on him, but not, not anyone who claimed that they were deadly weapons. Yeah, and I think one of the reasons that people... I almost wonder if one of the reasons people are uh, not hesitant to make those claims is because while it is possible they certainly might have you know some experience and might actually be you know proficient fighters but there's always that they they trust that people don't want to test it out they don't want to risk it mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. so yeah i've noticed those same people are loath to say that kind of thing when they're around someone who they know has had some training and yeah <laughs> so it shouldn't be any surprise though that there's a lot of mar- urban legends out there specifically about black belts and again as we mm-hmm. just mentioned you know, there's the the legend that if you get a black belt, you have to register as a weapon. But this one I I just read about recently, and I thought I may have heard it earlier, but apparently there's a legend that you have to, in order to get a black belt, you have to kill somebody. Wow. I have not heard that one. Yeah, I never heard that one either. And Well, actually, I said I just heard about it when researching, but I never heard anyone actually say it. And because if you think about it, if that was true... You know the when back when we were talking about uh, black belt factories, um, I was telling you about the place I did American freestyle karate, and there was a wall there of all the people that he awarded black belts to. So, you know, you'd think that if if you had to kill someone to earn a black belt, I think the police probably would have cracked down on that instructor already. <laughs> exactly. So. Yeah, and again, it wouldn't surprise me if that one originated from just people being drunk and stupid. And it's like, well, you had to you had to break a board to get a black belt. Well, I had to break someone's skull. I had to reach yeah. under his chest in his rib cage, pull out his heart, and show it to him before he died. <laughs> so, someone was playing too much Mortal Kombat there, huh? Exactly. <laughs> so, so another one that I heard again, going along the lines of black belts, is that. If you have a black belt and someone threatens you, you have to warn them three times uh, that you have a black belt before you're allowed to defend yourself. I've never heard that, but I heard something similar. Um, One of the videos I bought like 20 years ago, he sent a pamphlet along with it that was giving some instructions. And he he made some kind of a comment about legal liability and saying that you have to tell them, make sure they want to basically verbally say are you willing to fight? And if they say yes, then, you know, legally they've committed an assault. So I hmm. don't know. I don't know if that's the basis for that urban legend or what, but that is something I heard also. I don't know. That guy might have been full of it too. Yeah, that's... See, the thing is, I don't think that would stand up in a court, though, if, like, you know, you're having a disagreement about some, with someone in a bar and they're like, are you ready to... Are you willing to fight? And the person says yes. Okay, that's showing intention that, okay, yeah, you're willing to throw down but it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to do it. Exactly. So, I mean, I could, I would almost see that makes it all, that would, that would not be advisable because that would almost make you seem like the aggressor because it's Mm -hmm. almost like you're goading the person on. Mm -hmm. I agree. Uh, Yeah. When I read it, I was like, well, most of the info in the videos was kind of bunk anyway. So it's, it it follows that 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 would have been garbage also. Yeah. And when were those videos made? Was it like, uh, like nineties or, mm-hmm. you know, we talked about this set before. It was like, he claimed all this military and intelligence experience and yeah, I know. I, I know. We were, I remember which episode we were talking about that where, yeah, it's like his, 
martial arts background sounded like the background for a character in an action movie or something, but yeah. Yeah. Well, and I had to think long and hard before I uh, dropped my ego so I could admit, you know, publicly here that I actually spent money on that, you know, garbage <laughs> dumpster fire. Yeah. <laughs> well, another martial art, another another legend concerning the belt itself and not necessarily the people who have them. And I don't know if you've ever heard this one, but that the reason why black belts are considered and what the, or the supposed origin of the color ranking system where the legend is that belts were traditionally white, but you were not allowed to wash them. So they would darken over time. You know, after a while they would start to get stained with your sweat and they would start to turn yellow. And then after a while, the mold would start to grow on them and it's, they'd, they'd start to turn greenish. And that, yeah, I see you making a disgust look on mm -hmm. your face. And it's like, and then like, of course, from rolling around and, you know, and on the ground and stuff, eventually dirt and stuff would turn it brown. And maybe there'd be a little red because of blood. But, you know, eventually after years of, you know, blood, sweat and tears and stuff and rolling around and fighting, you're belt would naturally darken so have you ever heard that one before i heard something similar it was um that you had to go ritually diet a different color when you uh yeah <laughs> i heard that one that was kind of a offshoot of that one so red belt yeah, did you have weird... to diet in the yeah the next <laughs> rank you had to do like this really bizarro ritual and and diet it was just really really cultish sounding when it was told to me yeah that does sound weird i haven't heard that one about having to diet I, yeah, the one main one I heard is just the, like I said, the, uh, that they weren't allowed to wash it or that there was, if they believe that if you wash your belt, you were washing out the wisdom and knowledge that you had gained, which it's like, okay, come wow. on. <laughs> With, but <laughs> now my Kung Fu instructor actually set me straight on that one. Cause I actually did believe I, okay. I'll admit, I actually did believe it for a time and I mean, he heard a slightly different story that, uh, you know, originally, again, it depended on the martial art, but originally some arts just had like white to represent a beginner student and then like brown to represent an intermediate student and then black to represent the advanced. But then, you know, there was one karate instructor, they got a, you know, a, um, a run of belts where the brown was more of an orange. So they decided to put that in uh, as one of the ranks and... But there also was another story he told me, and this one I did actually find a little bit more information on, because even though the there may be many reasons why there's different, you know, different colors, that doesn't mean that you can't attribute meaning to those colors. Uh, for example, in Kung Nu, the way the belts progress, it's supposed to represent the growth and maturing of a tree. But this is from a wow. website, Martial Arts Center. And I remember my Kung Fu instructor telling me something similar to this. So white belt uh, signifies birth, uh, beginning of a seed. And again, you're as a white belt, you're the beginner searching for knowledge. Uh, so it's also beginning of life cycle, which represents the seed as it lies beneath the snow in the winter. Uh, yellow signifies the first beams of sunlight that shine upon the seed, giving it new strength, which is a beginning of new life. Uh, it's the first ray of knowledge opening their mind. Orange represents the power of the sun as it warms the earth to prepare for a new growth in the spring. Orange Bell is starting to, to, to feel his body and mind open and develop. 
Green signifies the growth of the seed as it sprouts from the earth, uh, rushing, reaching towards the sun and grows into a plant. And this is a point where a green belt starts to strengthen and refine his techniques. Blue signifies the sky as the plant continues to grow towards it. Uh, as they, they grow higher, uh, they grow higher in rank just as a plant grows higher. The student is fed additional knowledge of the art in order for his mind and body to continue to grow and develop. Purple represents the changing of dawn as once again they undergo a new change and prepare for transition to an advanced student. Uh, brown belt represents the ripening of the seed, maturing and harvesting process. Uh, brown belt is an advanced student whose techniques are beginning to mature. Uh, red is the red hot heat of the sun as the plant continues growing towards it. As a red belt student acquires detailed knowledge just as the plant grows towards the sun. Uh, the red belt also learns to be more cautious with his knowledge. Uh, red is a sign of danger and red belt is beginning to become dangerous with their knowledge and abilities. Black represents the darkness beyond, beyond the sun. Uh, black belt seeks new, more profound knowledge of the art as he begins to teach others. He plants new seeds and helps them grow and mature. His students whom will uh, form roots for uh, the art blossom grow through the ranks in a never-ending process of self-growth and enlightenment. So now, um, I, I know jujitsu BJJ only had what, like three or four belts? Four. White, then blue, purple, brown, and black. So I guess five technically, but a lot of times, you know, when they're listing techniques, they, they don't count the white belt. Basically, you know nothing and you're, <laughs> you know, going towards the first belt. Yeah. So I guess technically five, but so with it, uh, do you happen to know in jujitsu was there any knowledge or was there any meaning attributed to the colors or uh, not really? It's not just your skill level. You know, if you can hang with other people of certain skill, um, and it's really unceremoniously they they hand you the belt to throw it to you, and if you're lucky, the rest of the class claps for you. If not, you just <laughs> take off the old one, put on the old, new one, and get to grappling again. Now the next uh, few legends these go more along the lines of the mystique that martial arts had uh, especially before you know bjj and mma demystified it you know of course martial artists were believed to be able to do some pretty incredible stuff and i don't i would argue that's not entirely a legend because if you you know go to youtube uh I, i'm you know you can find videos of like uh, I mean, the other day I was watching a video on, I think it was called the slow-mo guys, where they take videos and, you know, in slow motion. And they had one of some Taekwondo experts doing these like crazy jumps and board breaking techniques. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, martial artists, you know, skilled martial artists can do some pretty incredible things, but not quite to the point of the next few things we're going to be talking about. Right supposedly martial artists one of the reasons we have to register ourselves as deadly weapons is because supposedly we know lots of ways to kill people uh, and i've again i've just heard lots of different legends about play you know instant kill shots what are some of them that you've heard about or is there any that you know what would you say is the first one you remember hearing about i don't know if it's um necessarily a kill shot but Basically, when I first heard of ninjutsu, every technique was supposedly a kill shot. 
you know, everything was going to hurt your opponent so badly that, you know, they couldn't teach it to you. Like the one that I remember is the good old, you know, heel palm to the nose that, you know, if you uh, give a good strong heel palm to someone's nose, it's going to cause bone to shoot up into the brain and kill them instantly, Mm -hmm. which is physically impossible because, you know, if you feel your nose, you know, it, it wiggles, it's not made of bone, it's, it's, it's cartilage. Uh, so it's, you know, physically impossible to do that. Granted, yeah, you could break someone's nose and give them a pretty severe nosebleed, but, you know, you're not going to shove something into their brain and kill them. Uh, now, another one I've heard is, you're talking about like headshots, um, the temple. I don't know if you ever heard anything about that, giving someone a good solid blow to the temple will cause them to uh, instantly pass out, maybe die. No, I haven't heard that, but I do know that you can get knocked out by being punched in the temple because I've seen it, yeah. you know, on TV. But yeah, and I think the the rationale behind that is just more because of the blood vessels or the nerves there. But it's not mm-hmm. like you know the legend where you can punch someone and it shatters their you know skull and causes brain you know fragments of bone to penetrate their brain. See, another one I heard is the a straight shot to the chest. Um, that could possibly kill someone in one shot. That one, I understand, has a very tiny bit of truth to it. Um, there, I guess there have been cases where if sometimes if you do take a really significant chest blow, and if it hits at just the right time, I guess there's a part in the, the heart's rhythmic cycle where if you interrupt it, it can cause the heart to shut down. But, you know, it's it's pretty rare that something like that would happen. Mm-hmm. I've heard something similar. Yeah, and then there's the other one about, you know, if you clap uh, clap your hands in someone's ears. I've heard that that can cause someone to lose consciousness. Now, I have learned it as a technique, but it's more of a distractionary technique. So it's not something that's going to lay, it's not really considered a fight ender. Uh, it's more mm-hmm. something that, to kind of like stun them or put them off guard for a couple seconds. Yep. Though I don't know if that one would be considered dirty fighting. I think so, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, the I know the Ninja Death Touch is another one of those ones uh that, you know, we hear a lot about um mm-hmm. you know Iron with Ball. Yep. And you know, yeah, if you touch someone in just the right place, they're going to instantly die. I think one of my favorites is the ability to deal with multiple opponents, you know. I can take on seven guys at once just myself. You know, I don't know what they... You heard that one before. Yeah, and actually in the style of Kung Fu that I studied, we trained in that. And now, again, we we always taught that, you know, always trained that as more of a last resort. Obviously, mm-hmm. if you're face down with multiple attackers, you want to, you know, you want to try to get, you know, the 100-yard dash is probably your best uh, technique in that case. But, right. I, I mean, I think in situations where you might be faced with multiple attackers. I think it's still good to train it because it gets you, you know, cause it gets you used to thinking about your surroundings. Um, but yeah, I mean, I admit even, I think even someone who is a highly skilled fighter would have, uh, you know, might be able to take on two people, maybe three, if they really don't know what they're doing. Uh, when you get to the point where there's like seven, eight guys, yeah, you're probably your best defense would probably be to run. <laughs> exactly. Now, the next topic I'd like to talk about, Bruce Lee. So, he was a legend 
in the martial arts world, so it should be no surprise that there are several urban legends about him. Now, I don't know about you, but I've heard two different ones for when, how he supposedly died. Yeah, I've heard a bunch. Yeah, so the which ones have you heard? Because the, I mean, the first one I heard is that, and again, this goes back to how we were talking about the mystique of martial arts, because in some situations, Asians who are first coming to America were not keen about sharing their martial arts with, with Westerners. Doesn't mean they wouldn't, it's just you'd have to earn their trust first. So one of the... Uh, one of the legends I've heard about Bruce Lee's death is supposedly he was assassinated by Shaolin monks because they were mad that he was teaching Westerners Kung Fu. Hmm. Yeah, and I heard that uh, Hong Kong organized crime assassinated him. Hmm. Okay, I hadn't heard of the uh, I hadn't heard of the organized crime uh <laughs> i suppose given a choice though maybe i would rather deal with the shaolin monks and organized crime but um Probably. yeah <laughs> the other uh theory i heard about his death is that you know we've heard about we've talked a little bit about the death touch but another one of those urban legends in martial arts is the delayed death touch where you know you strike someone and then, you know, they might brush it off thinking it was just a glancing blow or it doesn't hurt. So they just kind of, you know, shake it off. But then, you know, a day or a couple days later, they wake up dead because whatever. Um, and this this move actually didn't get incorporated in the first edition of uh, Dungeons and Dragons because the monk class in that game uh, did have a technique called Quivering Palm. And the hmm. rationale behind this one is that when you used it, it would do something to the the shock way or the the way that the waves in your body were vibrating or something. I it's been a while since I've read the first edition um, player's handbook, but they did use that in D and D. But it, yeah, supposedly would you be able to kill Tiamat with that? I don't. Well, that depends. Um, I would. Ha I'm impressed that you know Tiamat. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, but no, um, with, well, that's right. You've probably taken classes. Did you take Urbrock's class on ancient Near East religions? Mm-hmm. I did. But if we look at Tiamat and D&D, &D, I think you need magic weapons to hit her. So I guess it would depend on a DM ruling if they decide that they're going to declare the monk's hands as, as magical weapons. Right. Well, I guess if in our realm you have to register them as deadly weapons, and in that realm they could probably be magical weapons. Well, actually, I think there was, uh, in some of the different D&D &D rule sets, they did actually have rules for, like, higher-level monks, how you're, if you get the right skill or technique, your hands, mm -hmm. your your unarmed attacks eventually do count as magic weapons. Um, okay. But I don't know. See, that would probably require a saving throw versus death magic, and since Tiamat in D&D &D is usually considered a goddess, she would probably mm -hmm. have a pretty good saving throw. So uh, I would probably rule it that, yeah, maybe it would be possible if you could somehow get your fist to count as magic weapons. But, uh, yeah, she chances our Tiamat would make her saving throw. Okay. <laughs> but, but what fun would that be, though, if uh, you could kill Tiamat in one shot like that? Right. That would right. probably be pretty anticlimactic. <laughs> but while we're on the subject of D&D, &D, do you remember the old Dungeons & Dragons cartoon? I don't. Because I know I you mentioned... Know 
Yeah, it was back in the early 80s. And uh, you mentioned that, um, you know, with Tiamat. And actually, she does appear in the opening of the first episode. The, you know, can you imagine that? You're, the, the basic plot of Dungeons & Dragons, it, the cartoon, is that these kids go on the Dungeons & Dragons ride. And that transports them to a place called The Realm. And they meet this little short old guy called the Dungeon Master. And he gives them magic weapons and guides them on through their different journeys. And, uh, yeah, in the opening uh, scene of the cartoon, they're fighting Tiamat. And none of them were monks. The one of them was a thief acrobat and who had, like, a magic extending staff. So maybe if she, you know, maybe she could maybe hit Tiamat in just the right spot. But Right. Maybe it was a bow staff. So <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Though, actually, when you, um, again, since we're talking about urban legends, this would actually be relevant. Um, with, D, with the D&D cartoon, one of the urban legends about that is that whether the kids actually did get home or not. And it's been so long since I've seen the show, I don't remember this episode, but supposedly there was an episode where they did get back to Earth but they were only there for a short time because they found, because Venger followed the main bad guy followed them. So, mm -hmm. so they went back to the realm. So he, he didn't get unleashed on earth though. I don't know if Venger, if all his magic and stuff, if that would protect him from an AK 47 or an M 16 or a, you know, or even a Smith and Wesson. What do you think? No, I don't think so. <laughs> well, unless he knows protection from normal missiles, that might help. But, well, <laughs> but anyways, yeah. back to the, Back to the other topic that's we're getting us off topic. Um, the, uh, the yeah, so there was a there is an urban legend about the the cartoon series that you know the kids did finally make it home. Unfortunately, it's not true because the I mean they did have a script that they wrote um, for a the, a possible last episode, but they left it open ended as to whether they actually would choose to go home or not. I guess it was supposed mm -hmm. to be if the it could have led into it was supposed to be kind of like the ending of star Wars episode four, where they could have left it as it is, but it also would have left it open for a new, um, you know, for a new season or for follow up. Mm -hmm. But anyway, right. so back on topic, <laughs> like I said, that wasn't entirely off topic because I said there was that urban legend for a while. Mm -hmm. Now, another one I've heard about Bruce Lee is his fight with uh, Wong Jack man. So I've heard two versions of this one. Uh, the first one is that uh, as far as why they were fighting, uh, one of them goes back to the Chinese community in San Francisco back then being mad at Bruce Lee for teaching Westerners. So, and I, have you ever seen the movie Dragon, the Bruce Lee story? I have loved it still. Yeah. And I think they, isn't that the reason why they have him fight in that movie? I think so, yeah. Yeah, where it's like, okay, if you fight, if you win, you can continue to teach whoever you want. And if you lose, then you have to stop teaching Westerners, which I suppose that's probably the more romanticized or probably the more interesting version of the other reason. The other reason is that Lee boasted that he could beat any fighter in the San Francisco area, and Wong accepted. So... I don't know. I think that second one is a little less, is a little more boring. You know, I bet I can beat mm -hmm. anyone. Okay, challenge accepted. <laughs> right. So, and I know there's also some debate as to exactly how long it lasted. Um, I think, 
Oh, what was his wife's name? Shannon? Um, I think that's his daughter. Linda, I think, is his wife's name. Okay, yeah, Linda. Um, yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, Shannon's his daughter. His surviving daughter. Um, but yeah, I think Lee did. Uh, I think Linda Lee did write that it ended, you know, fairly quickly, and that Lee was the decisive winner. But I know there's other stories out there that it actually lasted for like 15 or 20 minutes, and it was not, you know, and like Bruce barely won. So I don't know. It's been a long time since I've seen Dragon, so I don't remember exactly what they did, how they worked it in there. I do remember they had the scene where the after the fight, the guy kicked him in the back and like broke his spine. Yeah, and he has to go through this long recuperation where he writes Dao Jikundo. Okay, so yeah, the were there any other? No, those are the only main urban legends I've heard about Bruce Lee. Have you heard any others or? Mm -hmm. No, it's about it. Basically, like. Again, the number of challenge matches he supposedly had. That's another urban legend, I think. Yeah. Oh, yeah, there's another couple. Uh, another one is that supposedly he was so fast that when they filmed him, that they'd have to slow down his uh, his attacks so that way it would look more realistic. Um, and there was actually one from a, just a few years ago. Have you seen the video that was going around of Bruce Lee playing ping pong with, uh, with nunchucks? No, I haven't. Yeah, it was it was in black and white, so people were circulating it around, saying that, uh, you know, this this is how good Bruce Lee was. He could play ping pong with nunchucks, but um, I guess that one was confirmed to be an urban legend. Um, oh yeah, then there's another one that had supposedly it was Jimi Hendrix taking a selfie with him, with uh, with Bruce Lee and Jim Morrison. But again, that was a uh, proved to be just a mm-hmm. photoshopping. So, and I think the caption for it was like, "You might think you're cool." But you'll never be right. Jimi Hendrix taking a selfie while chilling out with Jim Morrison and Bruce Lee cool. <laughs> right. Actually, one could come to mind. Um, I don't know if it's Urban Legend. Or I don't know if there's some truth to it or what. But supposedly he and Chuck Norris got into a real live sparring match or fight or whatever you want to call it on the Game of Death set. So hmm. that is one I've heard. Yeah. But I'm pretty sure I heard Chuck Norris himself debunk that. So. Yeah, because I was was under the impression that Bruce Lee and Chuck Norris were, they were on, I mean, I don't know if they were like bosom buddies, but they were on at least amicable terms. Mm -hmm. I personally haven't heard anything about there being animosity between them. Yeah, and knowing what I know about the movie business, if they'd have gotten into a fight on the set, they would have gotten, they wouldn't have been able to work again. This is awesome. Again, just on the topic of Bruce Lee, I mean, this really isn't an urban legend, but it's just more of an interesting story. Uh, have you ever seen Game of Death? Mm-hmm. I mean, do you know the original story? What do you know? What have you ever heard? What Bruce's original vision for the movie would have was supposed to be? No. Yeah, because the because in the version we got, it starts out with that fight between Chuck Norris and Bruce Lee, and uh, Bruce Lee's character almost gets killed by a falling piece of set equipment. And as it turns out, uh, I guess like the mob or some organized crime group wants him dead for whatever reason. It's It's been a while since I've seen the movie. And then eventually they do kill him. And they actually do use actual footage from Bruce Lee's funeral in that. Because what they do is they had this actor fake his death. And then he mm. was going after the organized crime gang that tried to kill him. Now, the original vision for Bruce Lee's original vision for Game of Death it was supposed to be that he was like a retired martial arts fighter and mm-hmm. the mob can, you know, they wanted some hidden treasure in this, you know, this uh, 
distant city where firearms were forbidden. So, and all weapons were pretty much forbidden. So anyone who went there, they'd have to fight unarmed. And what the mob did is they kidnapped his sister and said that, uh, you know, if you will go there with our men and you will help them retrieve this treasure or we'll kill your sister. So uh, the main shots that were survived from that, because unfortunately he never got, they never got to finish filming it. But there was the famous scene there with this fight between him and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Uh, there was also mm-hmm. a fight between him and Danny and Asanto. And then uh, there was also another one with another guy who unfortunately I don't remember. But supposedly there, this, there was this tower that had like five floors on it. And the original vision for the movie is it was supposed to be a reflection of Bruce Lee's whole martial arts philosophy with, you know, the Tao of Jeet Kune Do, you know, that style of mm-hmm. no style, because his character is able to defeat all these experienced fighters by capitalizing on the weakness of their style, because they, um, you know, again, they weren't flexible. They, they were only trained in one thing. And that's, however, when he finally gets to Kareem Adul Jabbar's character, he's supposed to have the same type of philosophy as he has, which is why that fight is a lot closer. But, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it would be interesting if we did get the original version, and I, I'm surprised no one ever in Hollywood ever tried to make a, mo- a do a remake that was closer to his vision. But Right, I'd love that. So, still, I mean, it's an interesting movie, uh, even if you take... So, I would highly recommend taking a look at it if you ever have a chance. Cool. So... Any final thoughts before ending this show today? Just that the biggest martial arts urban legend I ever heard was, like I said, um, the, about how it's so deadly that uh, I guess the modern day version is it's so deadly that it can't even you can't even spar. It can't even go in the MMA octagon or something like that. You know, garbage like that. Yeah, I hear that occasionally, too, where it's like uh, I've heard some. Some Aikido practitioners use that. They say like, oh, the reason you don't see Aikido in MMA is because our techniques are so dangerous, we'd be breaking people's bones. And it's like, okay. (laughs) (laughs) But, well, we hope you found today's show both entertaining and informative. Um, So again, if, uh, hey, if there's any, uh, any listeners, if there's any martial arts, urban legends we've missed that, you know, you would like to share, feel free to email us, uh, you know, POI Game Studio at gmail.com or feel free to leave a comment on the, the, the website. So with that said, I'd like to thank you all for listening and keep your kicks above the belt and below the face. It was a dark and stormy night. And the hosts of the Queens of the Damned podcast had just gathered around the fire with their tomes of forgotten lore. Don't forget the wine! And a lot of wine, much of which had already been imbibed. For her part, Miranda was discussing... A history of Frankenstein, from its conception to Karloff's beloved role as the monster. And Rachel would continue with... Vincent Price. Like everything about Vincent Price. And as the fire died down... Nikki would conclude the evening with something related to gothic literature, probably. You know me so well. Do you like listening to three women debate about the cultural significance of the horror genre? And also axe murders. I do love a good old-timey axe murder story. 
then Queens of the Damned, a horror podcast, is the show for you. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, Stitcher, and pretty much anywhere you can download a podcast. Visit us at queensofthedamnedpodcast.wordpress.com, qotdpodcast.podbean.com, or email us at qotdpodcast at gmail.com for more details about our monthly horror giveaways. Stay spooky! You have been listening to a program from the Point of Insanity Network. Visit us at poigamestudio.podbean.com for more shows. Follow us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at POI Game Studio.